Welcome to Thermochromia. This is Cricket, and I am welcoming welcoming you to my, I guess this is my pilot podcast. Um, I, I have a podcast that's actually out right now on this channel, but I'm not pleased with it, so I'm probably going to take it down. So if you've heard it, just disregard everything you've heard. Um, I'll be telling my story as we go along. Um, what this podcast is about is I wanted to kind of focus in on people with neurodivergencies, um, addictions, um, you know, issues that have caused their life to be a little more difficult than your normal, typical person who's making it through life. And um, people get through life all sorts of different ways. And I would like to I'm going to be talking to a lot of people about their coping techniques um, and things that have gotten them through life this far. Um, coping techniques are, are just absolutely fascinating to me because sometimes we know what we're doing. We are aware of the fact that we have a deficiency in our behavior that needs to be modified. And so we come up with a way to get around that natural behavior that we have. Sometimes we do that on purpose. Sometimes we do it completely on accident because it's a it's a it's a a way in which we have figured out how to move through life as efficiently as possible. Sometimes these coping techniques are great. Sometimes they're not. Um, sometimes they are drugs. Sometimes they're alcohol. Sometimes they are. You know, I, my mother makes lists upon lists upon list, and that's how she organizes her life. Um, that's her coping technique. Uh, but everybody is a little bit different, and uh, we're going to use this podcast to kind of um, explore what that looks like for various people. Uh, we're also going to look at what happens when you are diagnosed later in life with a neurodivergency, with a mental illness, with an addiction. Um, I myself, you know, I, as, I'm not going to tell my story um, as we go along here in this first episode, but as um, I interview people, as we talk to people, I'm going to be telling more of that story as we go along. Uh, but I was diagnosed very late in life with um, bipolar 2, which is bipolar depressive. Um, I was also diagnosed very late in life with ADHD, uh, generalized anxiety disorder, um, depression, <laughs> just all kinds of really fun neurodivergent, uh, mentally spicy stuff. So, um, we definitely want uh, a chance to look at all of these things and, uh, you know, everybody's a little different, but we want to see how everybody moves through life. Um, it was interesting looking back at my life because when I got my diagnosis for ADHD, hold on. Uh, when I got my diagnosis for ADHD, I, um, had not been aware that that's what was going on with me. Um, but as I look back over my life, I was like, oh my gosh, I realized I had that the entire time and it, my life makes sense now. I can put things into categories now because I have a label for it. I know why this behavior was happening at this time. It's because of the neurodivergency. It's because of the ADHD. Um, and a lot of the, I had coping techniques in place 
um, that were allowing me to get around my ADHD that I had no idea I was even using until I had a label for this specific mental illness or this specific uh, mental neurodivergency. And then all of a sudden it became clear and it all, it all made sense. So we're going to talk to, um, I've got a, a great guest tonight, um, Emily, and I'm going to let her introduce herself and uh, go on with the rest of it. So um, welcome to the first podcast of Thermochromia, and I hope you enjoy the ride. Emily, let's, yes. uh, <laughs> hi, how are you uh -huh. doing this evening? I'm good. I've, obviously, I've already told you I'm nervous, but I know I shouldn't be. <laughs> <laughs> You'll do fine. You'll do fine. <laughs> I'm. I'm just. I apologize for for my voice right now because I'm just coming down off the flu. So if uh, I cough, I apologize. I'm gonna try to mute my mic, but yeah. um, you know, it, it, I, I'm sounding a little husky tonight. So it's just yeah. unfortunate. That's the way it happens sometimes. Yeah, same here. I think my germ factory of a daughter gave me something. <laughs> I've yeah. been uh, I've been sneezing and it's probably just the pollen. So, <laughs> so much fun. Pollen hates them. So let's let's go through a little bit. I've I've got a couple of just like standard interview questions, but I, I want I want your story to kind of dictate how this podcast goes. Okay, okay. Um, if if it takes fifteen minutes, it takes fifteen minutes. If it takes two hours, it takes two hours. But <laughs> right. I, I'd like to just move through your life and you kind of tell me. Um, how everything has, has worked out. So first off, uh, introduce yourself. What's your name, uh, your pronouns, what you do, and uh, your various brands of mental spiciness. Okay. Well, I'm, I'm Emily. Um, my pronouns are she, her, and uh, I am an HR manager for a mid-sized electrical company. So super, super, super exciting stuff. <laughs> um, my, uh, my brands of mental spiciness uh, – after I got out of my marriage, uh, my psychiatrist that I was seeing told me that I probably had a touch of PTSD, which I, I thought was ridiculous. And no, there's no way. But looking back now, yeah. Um, and I have, uh, I still have anxiety, but it presented after I had my daughter. Uh, so I did not know that postpartum depression could uh present itself as um, anxiety, but uh, it absolutely blew me away whenever I finally got the answer. Um, and also, I am a recovering alcoholic. I am six, six years sober and three months and 29 days and several hours. So, wow, um, congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Very, very big proud moment of my life. That so. is a that is a huge, huge accomplishment, and you should be proud of every single day you have taken that step. Absolutely, yeah. So, uh, yeah, it's a. Uh, I don't. Uh, I I did have some bouts of depression, but uh, I don't think that it's chronic. So uh, I'm very extremely lucky there. Uh, but yeah, so far. The anxiety, and uh, obviously I'm always going to be an alcoholic. There's never a day I wake up where I'm not an alcoholic. Um, so those are the ones that just demand to uh, cling on to me for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now, there is one question that I am going to ask all of my guests. Okay. Um, because, you know, 
interviews take different tracks and, and different questions are asked based on different, different uh, circumstances in a person's life. But this one I'm going to ask of everyone. Okay. Um, we know that a lot of neurodivergent people have issues with food. So what is what? one food that you hated as a kid, but you can eat now? Or what food can you absolutely not eat because of texture? Okay, because of texture, uh, chicken legs or anything with a bone. I cannot do it. Wow. I just simply cannot do it. Like ribs, if I get any kind of fried chicken, it's the breast where I can, and I cut it off the bone and away from the bone because I just, there's something about that bone that I cannot, my teeth scraping against it, it absolutely <laughs> sends me into a, just a chills of grossness. That makes me. <laughs> That's such a weird and, and like specific thing. Yeah, it really is. I know, it really is. But, you know, as far as textures go, uh, lima beans, I absolutely hated them. And I have continued that tradition up until my almost 36 years of life. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Can't stand lima beans. But as far as textures go, really just that, just knowing that that bone is in there bothers me. It absolutely turns me off from the food. So Really? So, like, even if you know the bone is in there, but you haven't eaten it, you, you still yeah. can't do it? Yeah, I still can't do it. And I, I do not understand it at all. It makes no sense. <laughs> That's so cool. Yeah. <laughs> so you have to... Okay. So, uh, tell, okay, so tell me just a little bit. Let's, let's go back to the past. Um, okay. Tell me a little bit about how you were raised. Um, were your parents... Because a lot of a lot of what I'm wanting to do in this podcast is kind of explore the way that neurodivergency is um, is related to or structured by somebody who grew up um, in a um, high control religion, um, a cult setting, um, authoritarian parents, you know. And I want to see how that kind of relates to somebody who has you know, either, um, a different upbringing than that, or the, you know, you know, I, you, you kind of see what I'm asking here. Yeah, um, yeah. tell me a little bit about how you were raised. Were your parents supportive? Were they strict, authoritarian, permissive? You know, what, what did your childhood look like? Yeah. Um, well, whenever I was growing up, um, you know, my, my parents were, we were all really close in age, like three years apart, like barely, barely three years apart. And, uh, you know, we, we were all really close. I mean, we didn't bicker and fight like I hear most siblings do. So, you know, and we didn't go to church or anything, you know, not on a regular basis, you know, for holidays and stuff. So it wasn't like super religious or anything. Uh, obviously, we, we believed in God. We just didn't like go to the church and all that stuff. Um, so it really, religion wasn't at the forefront. Um but my sister, uh, as she got older, she started um, kind of acting out a little bit. And um, as a result of that, of her misbehavior and her, you know, things that she did, they kind of locked it down on me. <laughs> They're like, well, we've already, we've already, it's like the first pancake. We've already messed this one up. Let's try on the second one. <laughs> so they were a little stricter on me. Um, so I was always the, you know, I always, you know, when they asked me to jump, I asked how high on the way up. So, you know, it was kind of uh, expectations were higher, so to speak. You know, they were, you were supposed to, you were supposed to do do better, do, do more, you know. So it wasn't really like 
and a lot of the pressure I think I put on myself too. But um, but yeah, there wasn't really like a whole lot of strictness there. Like my mom and dad would let me do things, but it was just we're gonna watch you just a little bit closer than we did with your sister. So and then of course my little brother got older and they were like, Well, we were a little too strict on on Emily, so let's let's loosen it up with Joey. So <laughs> it's just how did that um how did that affect your relationship with your siblings? Well, I kind of felt like they got away with a lot. Whereas, you know, me, it just kind of seemed like if I did the same things that they did, it was uh worse almost. It's almost like they expected more of me and it was naturally like their expectations were lower of them. So they got away with the same stuff that I would get in trouble for. So it did uh it did kind of um I don't want to say like, I mean, yeah, resentment. Yeah. A little bit of resentment because, you know, you saw the things that they got away with and you saw the things that you definitely didn't get away with. Mm -hmm. And it is upsetting. It really is. And, uh, you know, they've apologized for that now. Um, your parents have, or your, or your siblings have my parents have, and my siblings, they were like, look, you know, we see it now back then when you were telling us about it, we thought that you were, you know, you were just dramatic being dramatic yeah you were being overly dramatic you know and uh there you know now we've all grown up and you know we're still super immature but <laughs> <laughs> I think there's yeah. something that's to be said for immaturity when you're an adult yeah. because if you know if you can't have fun when you're an adult what's the point exactly exactly so I mean we, we our feelings have matured our uh emotional intelligence has matured so to speak or matured and uh so we, we've all come to realize that there were certain things. And I, I do get that my dad and my mom tended to uh, praise me a little more than they did my siblings. So I did apologize to them for that, even though it, that wasn't on me. That was them. But still, I feel bad for about that, you know. Now, you're saying that you all came to each other and apologized. Was this at different points in your life when you realized that these things were a little different for you or different for them? And then you came to them and said, hey, this is something I've noticed that was different and I want to apologize. Did you guys get together in a group therapy session? You know, how did this come about where you were kind of trying to make amends with one another? Well, we were, um, we actually had like a big, uh, dinner out at the house one night uh out of my parents house and uh you know they had it was like right before fall so it was nice and cool outside so we all went outside and they had a bunch of brush that they wanted to burn so we had a big bonfire going and I guess we just all kind of got into our fields and started talking and next thing we knew we'd been out there for two or three hours and just had this big hash out session so I guess group therapy, but there was no psychiatrist involved. <laughs> hey, but, sometimes, yeah. sometimes nature is the best therapy. There <laughs> <laughs> you go. But yeah, we all just kind of hashed it out and we all kind of like came to the realization that we've all had these things on our mind and we needed to get it off our chest. And it did, it felt really good to have that happen because, you know, we were all on the same page at that point and we understood we each have our, have our, you know, problems that we've had with each other. And it's, it's good to not really like let it go. Cause you know, it's still, it's still there in the back of your mind, but you just, you feel better. You feel better about it. Having talked about it and mm -hmm. you realize that it's there, you know, that you're not 
making things up in your head. It, it is there and you understand what you need to do to, you know, fight against that or to just talk about it because eventually you're just going to blow up on somebody if you don't. Yeah. And yeah, it really, it really helped our relationship just that one night sitting there watching crap burn. <laughs> <laughs> I love doing that. Getting out there. Yeah. You don't even have to have marshmallows. Just get out there, you know, yeah. do, do the little redneck bonfire, get some gasoline, <laughs> you know, just really do it upright. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I would say get a beer, but not in your case. <laughs> yeah. They've got this really great double zero Heineken that I absolutely recommend to anybody that uh, doesn't want to drink alcohol, but you might still crave the taste of beer. Cause mm-hmm. I do that every now and then I just, I want that taste of beer and I don't, it's not the alcohol I'm craving because I know what that feels like. Right. I just, I, I just want a beer, you know, and that, Heineken makes a double zero beer and it is absolutely delicious. It's really good. Now, so. it, in terms of, and, and you can tell me if I'm prying too much here, but in terms of your addiction, um, does drinking the double zero beer or the, the zero alcohol beer, does that, does that affect your addiction in negative ways? In other words, I guess what I'm asking is, does it make you want to get drunk or does it actually help scratch the itch so you can just move on to one more day without alcohol? Yeah. And I'm, I'm actually one of these, I don't want to say a freak because you know, nobody's a freak, but I I'm one of these people that I made my mind up that I was never going to have another drink of alcohol. And, uh, you know, I got really, really sick and really, really felt horrible for like a week. And, you know, once that week was over with, I was, I was solid. You know, I, I felt solid. I knew that I would not do it. I would not drink again. I would stay where I was because I felt so much better. And being around alcohol, um, like right now, I mean, my fiance, he keeps alcohol in the house and it does not tempt me. So I, and that, that is not typical. That is not typical at all. And he told me flat out, I will not keep it in the house, you know, cause he's, he's like my biggest cheerleader. Mm-hmm. Well, you gotta told, have that support system in your life for yeah. sure. Yes. And everybody is, you know, everybody in my family, hell, even my grandmother is, is super, super proud of me. And, you know, they tell me all the time and I, you know, I'm really, I really am lucky to have that support system in place. Um, but yeah, like at the very beginning, that first month, it was touch and go. But uh, now there's no cravings. There's no um, there's no desire. The only desire that I have is that I wish I didn't have a problem so that I could, you know, drink a beer with my brother or, you know, just have that, you know, just not have the problem. That That's my desire is that mm-hmm. I wish that I didn't have a problem with alcohol. And have, have you ever been tempted to test that, test that out? Or is that I, something you just don't even want to try just in case? Yeah, no, no, I will not. I will not try it out. Um, because I did that one time uh, before I got sober this time and I made it seven whole months. And, uh, you know, I said, well, I'll just have a glass of wine. And it was head over heels right back into addiction, right back into that cycle. It was like I never left. Okay. So I, I am a, I am a teetotaler. Uh, it's, there's never, 
there will never be another, you know, time whenever I drink another drop of alcohol. So I, hell, I even if I get the NyQuil, I get the extra strength stuff because it has zero alcohol. <laughs> I am militant about this. <laughs> so. But that's good because you you've figured out where your limit is. Yeah. And, and you're sticking with that. You're not testing those limits. You you know where the boundary is and you know where to yeah. stop. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, you know, it is really, really important to know um, because that, that's how relapses happen. And that's how it happened for me. Um, I had that relapse. I, uh, you know, I had seven months and, you know, after a while, it got to the point where I didn't want to end the streak. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't want to end the streak. I want to. I want to, um, you know, keep up the streak. I wonder how long I can go. Mm-hmm. And, and honestly, that's kind of where I'm at right now. I want to see where, how long I can go. And I'm going to, I'm going to make it 50 years, you know, like, so, you know, I'm going to break my record. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. You know, it's, it's going to be awesome. So yeah, it's, you know, it is very, very important to, to have that support system in place, but uh, they've all been really, really supportive of it and they at the very beginning they said if anything that we're doing bothers you you let us know and you know I I just told them I said I have no interest in it so we are good you know so and I honestly forgot question that you asked (laughs) oh lord Okay, so let's go on to another question that's not so much about your, um, well, I I mean, it is a little about your addiction because that's part of neurodivergency is uh, having an addictive brain uh, or having, having these, let me back up. Everybody is addicted to something. Yeah. And if anybody ever tells you, oh, I don't have an addictive personality. Yeah, you do. You're just addicted to something that is socially acceptable. Right, right. So I just want to just... On this podcast, everybody's addicted to something, whether it's sugar or comic books or adrenaline or alcohol or lying. You know, you're addicted to something. So you're getting that dopamine hit from somewhere. You just don't realize where you're getting it from. So um, I guess my next question is um, your neurodivergencies. uh, Go back over those one more time. what what have you been officially diagnosed with? <laughs> uh, officially diagnosed with uh, postpartum depression, which it wasn't really, it's not the baby blues, it's anxiety, uh, PTSD, and alcoholism. So just those three, that's what I've been, that's what I've been diagnosed with. So, um, and, uh, you know, I have had depression before, but uh, my doctor evaluated me. We stair-stepped myself off of the, uh, off of the Lexapro that I was on. And, uh, I think it was Lexapro. Yeah, I think so. Mm-hmm. He stair-stepped me off of that very safely, monitored me and made sure that, that I was okay to come down. And, uh, part of the main reason that he did that was because at that point I had left my husband and started divorce proceedings and I felt better and he said well let's test this so we tested it very carefully and I got off of it and I didn't need it again so I think my depression was I guess situational mm-hmm. so um yeah I, I don't have any bouts with depression or anything like that so I, I'm very lucky in that respect so anxiety PTSD alcoholism those are my my three spicy my spice blend I should say I like it 
Now, I, I do want to, I, I didn't do this disclaimer at the beginning of the, of the show, but I, I, I am going to start adding this to the, I am not a medical health professional. Nobody that's on this show is a medical health professional. Um, and, and unless I tell you at the beginning that this person I'm interviewing is in the medical health profession. Uh, when I say things like everybody has an addiction, that's my opinion. Okay. Right. That is my opinion. I am not making a medical diagnosis of, of anything. Um, we call it a spicy brain because we don't want to. So sorry about that. Through the magic of editing, hopefully that didn't sound too bad. Um, anyway, let, let's, let's go on just a little bit to, uh, you know, uh, talking about uh, your PPD, uh, your PTSD, um, things like that. At what point did you realize or did, did the people around you realize that you had an issue that needed professional help? Uh, well, uh, with the, with the PTD, uh, Marshall actually got up one night to, to go pee after my daughter was born, uh, CMI, uh, but he noticed I obviously wasn't in bed with him. And, uh, he came into, he was walking through the apartment and he noticed that Madeline's door was open and saw that I was sitting on the floor, just staring at Madeline, my daughter. Mm -hmm. and uh he kind of whispered to me you know what are you doing you know and I, I got up and I went out and I explained to him that I was having an anxiety attack it felt like an asthma attack a little bit but there wasn't the I, I know what an asthma attack feels like because you know I'm asthmatic but uh I told him I said it feels like my chest is being crushed and the only thing that calms me down is whenever I come in here and I sit down and I watch her breathe because I was scared to death that Madeline was going to have an issue like my nephew Carter did, which my nephew Carter, he passed away uh, in 2015 from SIDS. Mm -hmm. And uh, just right around the one-year anniversary of his passing, I found out that I was pregnant. Oh, wow. So, yeah. So I, um, I had a whole lot of anxiety as, as she, um, you know, as she slept. So whenever I would have anxiety and I would be freaking out about that, because we didn't have the little outlet sock or anything like that. Um, so I mean, we, we were, you know, our, our bank account was very low when we had, I mean, it was, it was absolutely, we were very, very, uh, running on the, the edge there. Um, but, uh, we didn't have the, the money to buy the outlet sock or anything like that. So, this was the best thing I could do to make sure that she was breathing, that she was okay. And, uh, it helped me, you know, I would go in there, I would watch her breathe. It would take about five minutes for me to calm down and I could go back to sleep. And, uh, excuse me, Marshall said, it's, uh, it's time for you to talk to somebody because this is, this is not okay. So I had talked to the midwife that had delivered Madeline, you know, she asked about postpartum depression. And I, you know, I told her, I said, well, I'm just a little anxious. I said, well, not a little, I'm, I'm very anxious. I, I'm all the time anxious whenever I have her in the car. I, I have anxiety. Whenever I put her to bed, I have anxiety. I get up in the middle of the night having an anxiety attack. And all these things did not trigger her to tell me, oh, hey, guess what? You know, postpartum depression, it sometimes comes out as anxiety. You know, you're you're uh, literally delivering babies every single day. You, you don't think that maybe you might want to tell somebody that, you know. 
me, I'm just thinking, this is how moms are. You know, this is how our moms are supposed to be like this. You know, it's completely normal. Everything else has been completely normal. So obviously this is completely normal. But uh, I went to Madeline's uh, three-month checkup and they had the little checklist and they ask about how you're doing. You know, mm-hmm. how are you doing? Well, let me tell you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I, you know, I put, you know, it says, are you struggling? Are you doing this? And I circled struggling as hard as I could. And uh, my daughter's doctor, wherever that woman moves, we will follow because that will be my daughter's doctor. <laughs> she has been amazing. She is a godsend. And anybody that's looking for a pediatrician around these parts, I always just want to grab their face and scream her name, like go to her. She's amazing. Nice. Um, but she was the one and I'm sitting there thinking, you're not even my doctor. You're my daughter's doctor. And you're telling me this, like, why is my doctor not telling me this, you know? But uh, she told me about it. So I called up my uh, my gynecologist and I told her, I was like, look, this is this is what my daughter's pediatrician told me. You know, I need to talk to somebody about this. So she got me in with some people and I talked, you know, I talked to them for several sessions and uh, they taught me grounding techniques and stuff like that to help me calm myself down. And, uh, you know, I, I really, I still use the grounding techniques to this day. And, uh, you know, I still have anxiety, especially when my daughter wants to do cartwheels on the couch because I see ER visit just stamped right across that every time she does that. <laughs> Um, but, uh, but yeah, it's, uh, it was, it was nice to actually be heard, mm-hmm. uh, even if it was by the wrong doctor, <laughs> but or maybe uh, she was the right doctor. There you go. And that was the way to work at it. Cause I mean, honestly, she's amazing. I cannot sing her praises enough, but, uh, yeah, she, um, she really opened my eyes because I, I told her, I said, what, what, when she told me it could come out as anxiety, because it made sense to me now. You know, it's because of all the hormones, it's because of, you know, the sudden rush of hormones that, you know, giving birth, all these changes have happened and you have to account for that. Mm -hmm. You have to realize that this is a massive change. Your body went through a really, really big ordeal and you cannot just expect that your brain was not touched in any of that, you know, Mm -hmm. like your brain was definitely has changed, you know, and it's, uh, it was amazing to actually have that, those, uh, episodes that I was having, uh, validated. So it, it was really nice to know that a, I wasn't alone and B it was normal. So, you know, I, I just, I really, really appreciated all the people that had talked to me and everything and, and taught me the, the grounding techniques and everything. And I, I've actually told my uh, my future mother-in-law about those, and she has told me that it's helped her tremendously too. So, well, that, wh- while we're talking about your grounding techniques, what are they specifically? Because uh, what you're doing might help somebody else out there. Right. Right. Okay. So, whenever I am having a big wave of anxiety, um, the thing that I do is I, you know, your senses. You need to. Find one thing that you can touch, one thing that you can smell, one thing that you can see, one thing that you can taste, and one thing that you can hear. So you need to focus on each of those things for at least 
30 seconds Mm -hmm. and break it down in your mind what it looks like what colors is it what shape is it you know everything that you can see or that you're focusing on you need to break it down and then the next you move on to the next one what can you hear can you hear birds can you hear somebody mowing the lawn can you hear phones ringing you know different things just focus on all the things that you can hear and you know focus on everything that you can smell uh you know all those things that you just you hyper fixate you hyper focus on those and it's supposed to just bring you down and it's the main thing that i have actually retained from those sessions was that it's very important to ground yourself and that's the best way that i have grounded myself is just spend at least 30 seconds and if it requires more time it requires more time for me 30 seconds was about the magic number Mm-hmm. So, you know, just focus on those things. And it really, it helped me tremendously. And it helped me realize, you know, you, I, I need to calm myself down. You know, my brain's just screwing with me. You know, it's, it's okay. You know, and, but the main thing she told me that was good was if I need to go in and watch my daughter breathe to calm me down, that's a perfectly fine coping mechanism. Okay. So. Yeah. And I, you know, that really, because whenever I told her about my nephew, um, you know, not only was she, you know, extremely sympathetic, she said that, you know, you're making sure that your daughter's breathing and that's perfectly fine. So, and it does, it did help me because she said I, I did find a a good coping me- mechanism on my own. So I did appreciate hearing that too, because I have enough unhealthy, unhealthy coping <laughs> mechanisms. So in my past. (laughs) Sometimes just having an authority figure in your life tell you, yes, what you're doing is good. What you're doing is right. You, you are fine. This is all okay. Sometimes that is the best thing for you because it just, it just opens up your mind and it opens up your brain and it allows you to remove that fuzz that was around everything of uncertainty. And you're like, okay, this is good. This is right. I can do this. Right. Yeah. And it, it's almost like uh, you're, you're sitting there screaming, I need an adult or uh, an adult. And uh, you find the adult and they tell you that's what you're doing. Is, it's been okay. And you're like, oh, I am an adult. You yeah. know, it makes sense. Oh, to no. You. <laughs> I knew I was right. You know? <laughs> oh. Now, um, are you currently in any type of therapy? No, not right now. Uh, I, I haven't really felt the need for it. Uh, but I do know the signs, um, if I'm starting to feel that anxiety again, um, you know, right now it's, I'm able to, like I said, ground myself right now. And, uh, mainly it's just everyday things and it goes away very, very fast whenever I have, you know, watched my daughter run across the room and throw herself basically at a chair (laughs) and, you know. I'm like, stop doing that. She stops doing it. The anxiety goes away. So, you know, it's, I have noticed that I'm handling it well, and I'm not, uh, I'm not having to do the things that I was having to do to calm myself down as much. So I feel like I'm in a good place right now, but if I know the signs, if I'm heading in the wrong direction. So if I do need to go back to therapy, I know the signs for when it's time to do that. Okay. So, yeah. Are you currently on any type of medication to kind of help kind of 
um, allay what's going on with you, or are you just you kind of going at it, going at it on your own, or or do yeah. you need you know you may not need medication. I know you said you had stair stepped down off of your depression medication. Are you on anything else that's kind of helping you in your daily life? Nope, no, nothing. Luckily, I've uh, I've been able to handle it. But uh, if I ever need to, I'm I'm gonna fully accept that help because. You know, sometimes everybody just needs a little bit of help with that. And it's not a uh, I don't want to be on medication type thing, because that's the type of attitude that gets you into some serious trouble. Um, I realize that I, I may need medication in the future. And if I do, I'm fully open to that. But right now, I'm OK without it. And my uh, my doctor, uh, my general practitioner, she. She thinks we're we're okay, we're on good ground, and I know I can call her and she can get me back in with the psychiatrist with a referral and everything. And you know, I, I feel comfortable now that I, I don't need it. So if I ever get to the point where I feel like I'm going to, Kim, my doctor will be the first phone call I make. So it's excellent. excellent. Yeah. And and you you kind of sound like you have all of this figured out. And I don't mean like you, you've got it all figured out. We all, that's, that's not what I mean. It, it seems like you have a good set of steps in place in case you feel yourself going off a cliff or in case right. you have a contingency plan. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And that's that also kind of, uh, I, uh, you should see my calendar at work. I have uh, so many reminders and so many, uh, things like I you, you said your mom was a list person I'm, mm -hmm. I'm kind, of, kind of a list person so you know I have uh, I have given my uh, future in-laws lists of Madeline's doctors lists of Madeline's medications that she might need to take and the amounts I, I am a planner so <laughs> you know I am a planner I am always thinking about what's the next step and I swear I think it's my school that my my high school my because I went to the same school kindergarten through senior year mm -hmm. and I was one of 56 people that graduated in my class and it was tiny school but they were always preparing you for the next step you know your next step when you're in kindergarten you're preparing for the first grade first grade you're preparing for the second grade so it was it was always uh what's next so I I am a planner and uh my calendar at work would probably make somebody's head melt. So, <laughs> uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm always a planner. So I, I like to know if this happens, this is what I'm going to do. You know, so I have contingency plans is a very, very good way to put it because that is, you know, I know what it looks like. I know what it feels like. So if that happens, this is what I'm going to do. So yeah, I am a, I guess the type A personality. <laughs> <laughs> now, let me ask you this. As far as uh, setting up your plans, your contingency plans for your mental health and your physical <laughs> well-being, um, a lot of people have trouble doing that because they have a lot of trouble either identifying that they have an issue that needs to be dealt with or right. admitting to themselves that there could be something there that needs professional help. So... As you were going through your little journey here, at what point did you figure out, hey, I can't do this by myself? And, you know, you jumped on that train and, and went to therapy or talked to someone or like at what point, where was your point where you realized you needed help? 
Yeah. Um, well, it's uh, Marshall, Marshall pointing it out to me uh, whenever I was sitting in her bedroom. That was that was kind of the turning point for me as far as the anxiety goes. Um, that was that was a big uh, a big point for me where I, I realized this is an issue. But, um, you know, that that was uh, he, he really did help me out there. Um, you know, because it is really hard to realize you have a problem uh, when you're in it. It really is. Um, but at some point, you do realize you're in a problem and you're there's, you know, sometimes you're flailing, trying to figure out what to do. And sometimes, like in the case of my drinking, I didn't want to do anything about it. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to do anything about it, you know, and there's a there's a great quote from uh, my man, RDJ, Robert Downey Jr. He said, uh, quitting is easy. It's wanting to quit that's hard. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's, that is very, very true. It is very, very true. It's hard to decide that you want to quit. And sometimes you just have to, you know, some people just suck it up and they do it for people around them. Sometimes they just, you know, they do it for because somebody gave them an ultimatum. Somebody's forcing them to do it, and a lot of times those people have uh, relapses. Um, because honestly, the most important person that you need to do it for is yourself, mm-hmm. plain and simple. And that's who I did it for this last time, and that's honestly probably why it stuck for me. Um, but yeah, it's as far as my my drinking. Whenever I realized I needed to stop was um it's actually my my anniversary date is very easy to remember my first day sober was 1 1 2016 because i had a really 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 bad new year's eve so um like it was it was awful and i i don't remember a lot of it but uh you know it's yeah, it was it was a very, very bad night. And I woke up and I was so mad at myself. And I swear I got so mad at myself that I kind of shoved myself into sobriety. Like, what the hell are you doing? Just stop doing this mm-hmm. and just made up my mind. I'm going to stop. And it, it was hard for about a week, but uh, I knew I had a problem for well over a year before that. So, like I said, it's... um it's it's really hard to uh, with the with the addiction. It's hard to want to quit because you like that that feeling. You like that uh, that numbness. That's what I liked about it was I was numb. Mm-hmm. You know, I was numb to everything. And uh, you know, it's uh, after a while, it just it becomes a habit. Obviously, you get addicted to it. But uh, your body, your mind, everything gets a, gets absolutely dependent on it. And uh, it's uh, it's really hard to convince yourself that you know, you have a problem and you need to quit. So it's different for everybody. But me, I got so mad at myself that I, you know, gave myself a verbal ass kicking <laughs> <laughs> and just, you know, white knuckled through it. And there's a lot of people that they're going to need rehab. That's, that's absolutely acceptable. They're going to need AA. That's absolutely acceptable. I am not the norm. Uh, but I, you can ask my ex-husband when I'm done with something, I'm done with it. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, with me, uh, with the anxiety, Marshall was the catalyst for me to realize 
this is an issue. And, uh, and you know, it is, uh, it is really, I, I feel really thankful that he got up to pee that night because I would not have realized that this is, this is a little off, you mm -hmm. know, this is a little off. But thankfully his bladder was full and he woke up. So. <laughs> <laughs> now let me ask you a little bit about your childhood, a little bit more about your childhood. Um, because a lot of time you said your, uh, your depression tends to be situational. Uh, so uh -huh. you're probably not, again, I'm not a doctor. I am not a medical health professional. I'm stating an opinion here. Your depression is likely not caused by a chemical imbalance. Right. Um, it is uh, more than likely just situational in nature and um, you can snap out of it. Um, however, stuff like that can um, exist from childhood where you have these bouts of situational depression, bouts of situational anxiety. Um, yeah. You know, uh, because PPD doesn't come out of nowhere. You know, that's yeah. just, that's just you know, there's something in you that has caused that to manifest. Mm -hmm. um, so as far as when you were a kid, um, did you feel like an outsider in your family, in your friend group, anything like that? Or did you have a good support system that kind of led you to this point where you're at in your life where you can feel like you're flourishing? I, I had a very good support system. I, I was very lucky in that aspect. Um, you know, I, I did have, uh, I do know that some of my anxiety comes from my childhood and it was I wanted to, I wanted to absolutely blow my parents away. I wanted to, you know, just do amazing at everything. I wanted to be the best. I wanted to, you know, just excel. And, you know, I worked and worked and worked at school. You know, at my school, it's, you know, it takes more credits to graduate from the school that I went to um, than your average public school. So it was a private school. Um, and, you know, I was, I was really, really working myself, you know, just trying to, to thrive, to do well with it. And, you know, whenever I didn't, I would be a nervous wreck because when you got a grade that was below a certain point, your parents had to sign it. Mm -hmm. And I got a U, which was unsatisfactory, basically an F, on a math test. And I had worked myself up to the point where I was going to just throw up because I had to tell my dad that I got a U. He had to sign my paper. <laughs> and and the thing is, is he wasn't this, you have to do good. You have to do good. You have to do good. You know, he wasn't that type of parent. It was, if you're struggling, let me know. Don't wait until the water is up over your nose before you reach a hand out to be pulled out and out of the water when it gets waist high that's when you need to reach out and ask for a hand mm -hmm. so he's always been that type of dad so I really don't know why I was like that it really it's one of those things that I never really figured out in therapy because I never really put a you know a pinpoint on it. it didn't make any sense so um you know, I I was about to about to throw up and I, I started bawling and barely got it out that I got a U. And dad sat down at the table and he said, well, let's look at these questions that you got wrong here. And he literally sat there with me for two hours, went over the math questions, looked at my textbook, all that stuff. And we worked through the problems and he showed me what I did, where I went wrong, all that stuff. And 
just sailed right through it. The next test, I got a B. Mm-hmm. You know? And I was absolutely thrilled with that. But it was in that moment that I realized you can, I can talk to my dad. Mm-hmm. You know, I can talk to my dad. So I was like eight at that point. And, you know, it, it really calmed down after that. Like I really, really did calm down quite a bit, but I really don't know where the anxiety came from. It was just, I don't know if I had just, it was there and, you know, it was just manifesting itself at a young age and him helping me calm me down. I really don't know where the anxiety came from, but it didn't disappear that day. It was still always there, but it was just better. You know, whenever he had sat there and told me, you can tell me this stuff. You don't have to cry your eyes out when you come home. If you don't do your homework, yeah, I'm going to be a little upset, but you know, we need to work through this. Mm -hmm. He's, you know, he's always been, I've always been a little closer to my dad than to my mom. And uh, whenever I do need help like that, I always go to him. So, you know, it's, I've always been closer to my dad. And I think that honestly, that moment is probably why. Mm-hmm. because whenever I needed help he was kind mm-hmm. he was kind he wasn't mean to me he wasn't upset you know over the I mean, because I got such a bad grade you know he was he was perfectly okay with it so I uh I think I was just the that the anxiety has always been there and the PPD PPD just like exacerbated exacerbated it can't talk yeah <laughs> Uh, just made it so much worse and made it more more towards the forefront and more uh, evident, so to speak. So, um, but yeah, as, as a kid, I was always, nobody was harder on me than me. So, you know, I was always striving to do, to do better and to do, uh, to do more than uh, was asked of me. And a lot of the times I think I took too much on. So, yeah, but uh, as a kid, that was, you know, I always had the support system, and uh, to this day, I have an amazing support system. So, it's we've always been a very close knit family, and uh, I'm very lucky in that aspect. But as far as the anxiety, I think it's always been there. It's just I've found a way to deal with it on my own. Do Do you think that your family kind of kind of helped you uh, discover those ways uh, to deal with uh, your anxiety and your depression? Or uh, do you feel that uh, you were able to kind of come on it on your own or was it a combination? I think it was a combination because dad, uh, dad telling me, well, let's sit down and look at this and see, see what happened here, you know, and him sitting down and being, you know, I don't want to say nice to me because I mean, he's my dad. He's supposed to do that, but um, just, um, being calm about it and being kind and helpful the way that he was, it just, it kind of opened my eyes. I should, I should say it opened my eyes to see he's not here to be mad at me 24 Mm seven. You know, he's here to help. Obviously he's my dad. So that really helped. But uh, I did kind of figure out ways to deal with it on my own. And, you know, the, I used to, do the the deep breathing and everything because I, I saw that in a movie one time and that seemed like a really good thing to try you know silly things like that but uh, as far as you know just being able just realizing that I can go and talk to him when I'm struggling that was 
that was a huge help. Yeah, that was a big help. The, the, and the, and you're, I'm I'm glad to to know that you're recognizing your privilege in that. And I'm not trying to be you know snarky or anything like that. I'm just saying, yeah. you know, there's a lot of people that don't have that, and and okay. that's that's awesome that your that your support system was that good. I'm yeah. I'm really pleased for you. Yeah, it breaks my heart that there are people out there that don't have that support system, and I, I do not know what that's like. So you know, when they share their experiences, I, I just absolutely, I just try and listen instead of saying, "Well, my family did this," because that's like, like seriously, just don't do that. Like, don't don't rub it in that you had it better. There's no reason to do that. Just listen and learn you know, learn what somebody else's experience is like, because nobody's experience is the same. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. Yeah. Um, hold on one second. My dogs are running. <laughs> we're going to eventually get this podcast right. I don't know how, but we're going <laughs> to. <laughs> so uh, you said you did have a touch of PTSD. Um, I yeah. don't want to dig too deep into your trauma unless you just really want to share what, you know, what happened to cause the PTSD. Uh, but I did have a question about it, um, if you were willing to share. Yes, absolutely. Okay. So um, as far as um, how much you'd like to share of the story, that's totally up to you. Uh, but my specific question was, um, does having your particular brand of neurodivergence make it more difficult to remember the details of your trauma or does it make it easier because really you could go one of two directions on that you either your brain kind of shuts down and won't let you remember exactly what happened or it just kind of lays it out in stark detail and you have no choice but to just face everything uh so which one did you get i got the really bad kind where you just remember absolutely everything so Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, and I, I actually have identified, uh, my trigger. It, it, it seems to be only one, thank goodness, um, for, uh, my PTSD. And that is a man yelling at me because, uh, in my past in my marriage, uh, that I'm thankfully away from and I have divorced him and I'm free of him. And I, I, hope to God I never ever lay eyes on the man ever again if I see him you know if I see him in you know never again it'll still be too soon you know so that um but uh my trigger is a man yelling at me so if a man is yelling at me it's followed by slaps it's followed by kicks it's followed by punching it's followed by tossing so he used to toss me across the room as hard as he could all kinds of fun stuff. So whenever a man is yelling at me, I will involuntarily pee myself. Oh, wow. And I have no control over it. Um, I will wet myself. So I, um, I've explained this to my boss and it was quite embarrassing to, and it, it really shouldn't be embarrassing to talk about this stuff, especially to somebody that could potentially yell at you. Mm-hmm. So, but luckily he has, he has remembered that. And if he is upset with me, he's, you know, he'll say, well, let's, let's do better. Let's, let's do this, which that has happened twice. And mm-hmm. so, luckily, you know, I've been a model employee. <laughs> <laughs> I 
I don't see how anybody could not be with the calendar that I have. Seriously, I have to take a picture of it and send it to you so you can see this insane <laughs> thing. It's, it looks like madness in a calendar. Uh, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, I luckily I have, uh, like I said, luckily I have been very, very, uh, very, very fortunate in the support system because I, I told them, you know, I have an ex. He was abusive. This is what he looked like. And all of the uh, the project managers at my office, they have uh, seen what his picture looks like. So if he ever walks through the door, they are going to do everything they can to stop him from getting to my office. Because mm-hmm. um, he actually did that at a job that I was pimping at. Wow. Uh, yeah. So I um, luckily managed to uh, managed to tell the guy in the front, do not allow him back here. And several diesel mechanics stopped him from going back there. <laughs> <laughs> you don't mess with those guys yeah you don't mess with those guys they've got really heavy wrenches but uh yeah if a man is yelling at me I will I will wet myself so I have managed to speak to all the people all the men in my life because it's specifically men it is not women I've had women scream and yell at me and nothing and the man has to be present right there in front of me because I've been yelled at on the phone and I don't have the same response hmm. so um, you know, and it, it is very weird, but I think it's just the presence of a man who's yelling at me. And in my experience that I'd been conditioned to, if a man was yelling at me, he was going to hit me. Mm-hmm. So, um, so yeah, that's, that's one thing that I, I've tried to, you know, be very open about it and tell people like, and it's, I don't make it my entire personality. I try not to anyways. Um, because I, I don't want him to have that, you know, I don't want him to have that. He's changed my entire personality because he hasn't. Um, but uh, yeah, I try not to make it my entire personality, but I want to let the men in my life know you can't yell at me. And if you do, I I cannot account for what's going to happen next because mm-hmm. it's not pretty. But, uh, you know, with the PTSD, I, when my doctor told me that the symptoms that I was telling her about seemed an awful lot like PTSD. I was like, there's no way that's, you know, war veterans have that. What I went through is nothing like what somebody that went to war is, you know, what they, what they experienced. It is nothing near that. And it really doesn't matter what size your trauma is. If, if it's trauma, you can get, you know, post-traumatic stress disorder. You can have that. So we're not it's, we're not playing the oppression Olympics over here. We're not trying to see who wins. Exactly, trauma is trauma. Trauma is trauma. It doesn't matter what flavor it came in. It's trauma. Even if they, even if you, even if you didn't get hit, it's still you know someone yelling at you may be enough to trigger you. And for me, it that that is enough. You know because that's I've been conditioned to expect the worst after that. So uh, luckily, I haven't had an incident in about four years so um and that was um that was I don't even I don't even remember what that was about but I was in a grocery store I remember that much and I had to run off to the bathroom which was super embarrassing but um yeah it's uh it is very very it's very embarrassing when that does happen but uh PTSD if you I mean just talk to somebody because it is very important to pinpoint it and to learn your triggers so that you can, I don't want to say avoid it, but uh, cope with it when it does happen, when you mm-hmm. are triggered. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, um, 
we are kind of coming to the end of the time that I had uh, like set aside for this. Um, so I think this is a really good stopping point. Yeah. Uh, but is there anything else that you would like to share with regards to um, your particular brand of spiciness and how your coping techniques might have might help someone else out there? Uh, just if uh, you know, if you've just had a baby and you are feeling what you feel to be a super, super large amount of anxiety, or just if you feel like you're even having just a little bit of anxiety and it's enough to make you worry, talk to your doctor. If that doctor doesn't take it seriously, go to another doctor, find out, find an answer, because we know that a lot of the times women aren't heard at the doctor and it's, it's very hard to get a diagnosis, but you need to fight for yourself for sure, because it is miserable living with that. And also to not know that PPD can present as anxiety that might be enough to have somebody say, hey, wait, I might need help. So if you are experiencing anxiety after you've had a child, it is perfectly normal, but please go talk to somebody because you, you can get help. You can get, uh, you can get some, uh, some coping techniques. And if my grounding technique helps you, I'm so happy because it helped me out tremendously. If I can help one person, it will make my day. Um, yeah, but uh, yeah, the grounding techniques, you know, get you get you a support system. If it's if it's your therapist, if it's your therapist alone, that's great. You know, that's and I hate that there's people out there that don't have support systems because it's so important. It really is. Mm-hmm. But um, you know, I just just try and get the support that you can. Talk to a therapist. Talk to anybody that you can, and. Uh, it really helps talk with other people that have struggled with it too, because you know that you're not alone. Absolutely not alone. And that, and honestly, that's the whole point of this podcast is to mm-hmm. let people know you are not alone. Um, not everybody's neurodivergency looks the same. Um, mm-hmm. My ADHD looked very different than um, what you would typically think of an ADHD person. Uh, right. My bipolar looked different. It took a very... Um, very well-versed therapist to figure out the type of bipolar that I had because I had been misdiagnosed with just having depression. And unfortunately, my specific brand of bipolar doesn't respond to to antidepressants. It just makes it worse. And so um, I had a therapist who was, you know, really cognizant of this and really, really paid attention. So um, yeah, a a good therapist, um, find somebody who listens to you. Yeah. And, uh, and really is invested in taking care of you because it is, it is so, so, so important um, yeah. that you have somebody helping watch over your shoulder for these things. Absolutely. And if the first one doesn't fit, it's just like shoes, try on another pair, mm-hmm. you know, another psychiatrist there might, or a psychologist, psychiatrist, whichever one you want to go to, just keep trying because it, it is very, very important to find somebody that you're comfortable with, because if you're not comfortable with them, you're not going to be open with them. Mm -hmm. You've got to be open with them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, Emily, I definitely appreciate your time. Thank you so much for being my first guest on this inaugural podcast. So you can chalk that up in your little book that you're the first guest (laughs) on the podcast. I feel very honored. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you so much. And um, we will call it an evening. All righty. Well, thank you so much for having me. All right. All right.
Well, that was our interview with Emily, and it was pretty awesome. And I just want to let everybody know we are more than likely going to have her back on uh, because she's a great uh, she's a great guest, and she's one of my best friends. And uh, I just love talking to her. And uh, so I hope that you guys um, heard something that was interesting for you today. Um, I hope that you heard something that helped you in your journey through mental health. Um, we're going to be talking with a lot of people on, uh, on these, um, on these podcasts, on these, uh, episodes, we're going to be talking about the way that, um, high control religions, high control families affect your neurodivergence, but we're also going to be talking about your specific path through neurodivergency, whatever that means. Doesn't mean you were raised in a strict religion. Doesn't mean you were raised in a permissive household. It doesn't mean any of those things. It just means that you yourself have a journey and we want to hear it. Um, please feel free to reach out to us um, at Thermochromia. We are at Thermochromia on Twitter. Um, thermochromia at gmail.com. Um, you can also reach out to me on my personal Twitter. Um, again, I'm Cricket. It's Cricket Shay, S-H-E-A. So Cricket Shay on Twitter, on Instagram. And um, you can find me on Facebook. So uh, thank you guys for coming along with this journey. And uh, we'll see you next time. <laughs>